Hey everyone, you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. My name is Eric Wright, I'll be your host. And today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Veeam. So V-E-E-A-M, go to veeam.com. Uh, Veeam has been a longtime supporter of, of my blog at discoposse.com and uh, they've uh, transitioned over and uh, we're, uh, we're making sure that we throw some love their way. So make sure you check out veeam.com. Uh, super cool tool. I've been using them for a long time. We're on business continuity, uh, data protection, and uh, they talk about hyper-availability of data and applications anywhere. All right, today we're going to talk to Peter Sisson. Peter is an incredible individual, and this is one of those podcasts where we started uh, with just, we, we went in a lot of neat directions. There are so many lessons to unpack from what Peter shares. Peter's the CEO and co-founder of Yaza. So if you go to yaza.io, you can see what that's about. You can actually download the app. We're going to talk about social video. Uh, it's a really great platform. We touch on the technology, but really we go into uh, how to deal with entering into markets like China as a startup, what the dangers are, what the risks are, and really just tons of great life lessons. We actually talked for another like half hour after. So this is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Peter Sisson. I'm co-founder and CEO of Yaza, and welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Let's let's get started. All right. So, Peter, you've cool. you've got an incredible story. Uh, you've got piles of incredible stories. Uh, I I want to open up for folks that that don't already know you. Just get you to do a quick intro. So, tell us about tell us about Yaza. Tell us about where you're at today, and then we're kind of go we're gonna go back in the wayback machine and and talk about how you got here. Well, that sounds fun. First of all. Uh, Eric, I just want to thank you so much for having me, and I also want to congratulate you on reaching your 100 podcast milestone, which is pretty exciting. Thank you. Um, yes. That's a lot of talking. <laughs> Great. <laughs> exactly. People are, are bound to be so, tired of my voice at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, you have definitely have a nice radio voice. Um, so, yeah, my company, Yaza, is... Basically, it makes HD video mobile, and that's kind of the tagline, but it allows you to record HD video and it, share it without using data, store it without using up your phone storage, and find it uh, because all the videos are put on maps and they're made searchable with uh, machine learning AI. We tag the videos for content. And so it's basically a new kind of video messenger. Uh, think of it as like a WhatsApp with maps because every post is mapped in order to validate its authenticity. Now there is, we could do, I could do seven hours right there. Like that is like so much to unpack. Yeah. And you've, 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 there got, is a lot. It, so just on your background too, so you come from, you, you've got a master's degree from Cornell in computer science and AI with, and also Stanford, you've got, you've got this, a litany, you went to Tuck, you went, you, you've been, you've done a lot of things that just, I'm already tired 
reading your how you got to the point where you even got to the first startup. And well, school school was a great way to put off making any decisions. So that was <laughs> what I was doing in my twenties. So we'll I, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna come back to Yaza because there is actually a really powerful story in, in the way that you've approached it. But sure. you have got uh, a, a list that you are are truly kind of the serial founder, and I want to go right to the right to the very start, and let's uh, let's share a glass of wine uh, together at Wine Shopper, and and you you started early, and and so for folks that that, that want to follow your story, well, I'll, I'll include links to 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 a lot of your stuff, Peter, uh, for folks to be able to cool. click around and, and see your history. But you started in two thousand. And uh, sorry, you started with Wine Shopper, and then that was your first, not only your first founding, uh, but your first sale in, in 2000, which became a you know, part of Wine.com. And and I'm I'm old enough to have lived through those early dot-com days, and this was actually a successful time to to do a, a, a great exit. But let's talk about what led you from from deferring decisions into starting a startup. <laughs> well, you know, part of it is. Uh... I, 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 I'd like to say I'm unemployable by others, but obviously that wasn't the case at the beginning. I think that's become the case, but, um, really for me, I was the sort of guy that, um, you know, as a kid, I didn't really fit in. I certainly wasn't one of the cool kids. I think I was kind of a classic geek. Um, but then, uh, you know, as I grew up and into my twenties, I started to come out of my shell and the college and what have you. Um, and you know, I, I, I realized pretty quickly after my first job, which was at Bell laboratories that I did not enjoy working in big corporate structures where everything was controlled by processes and rules and, and, and moved frustratingly slow. Granted, this was Bell Laboratories, uh, just as deregulation was happening, revealing my age here. And so it was not exactly a fast-paced environment to begin with. But I also, I didn't want my future to be at the hands of others in the sense that if you work for a big corporation, you can be doing everything right. And then because of some board initiative to downsize or move a location of a factory or something, you can lose your job, even though you've been doing a great job. And that's no fun because people have different agendas. So I didn't like that. And I, you know, I didn't, I'm not good at politics. I, I'm, I'm really bad liar. Not that politics is all lying, but there's a, a subtlety to it that I'm not very good at. And I realized that in many of these big companies to get ahead, it's as much political maneuvering as merit. And um, with startups, it's just between me and my customers and, and my investors. And, you know, you never don't have a boss. And in, this, in startup, your investors are your bosses. But um, you have a lot more freedom. And obviously, you're calling the shots and driving the, driving the ship. And um, that's exhilarating. There's a, 
there's a really interesting thing where, and I, I like how you couched, you know, we obviously, we leave this idea of like politics and you know, there's a certain amount of lying that goes along with it. And it's not lying in the sense that you're overtly just like misleading, that it's you're gently misleading. And I think that's, yeah, that, <laughs> that's the, a good way to put it. The natural thing for people to do is to kind of gently mislead people towards the next. It's really kicking the can down the road of a responsible and difficult discussion that people don't want to have. And sometimes you don't even want to have it with yourself. And this is where the moving, like you said, and, and no matter how much you love your job and how much your job loves you and how great you are amongst your peer group, there is an unfortunate set of circumstances which could lead to you becoming on the wrong side of the ledger Mm -hmm. through no fault of your own, just because, hey, things are going to happen, especially, you know, we've, you and I have have lived through some waves, especially in technology where, you know, hey, life comes at you fast. <laughs> Where you're like, this is it. You know, it's like, like, like this is the guy who says Disco Posse is his podcast name and, and my, my, my Twitter handle. But like, Disco is one of my favorite examples. If you look at the graph until 19, you know, 68, it's up and to the right. <laughs> and then <laughs> something happened. So no matter how good a thing is, it can suddenly shift and and it's tough for people to to be ready for that realization. And it's sad too. Like I know. Go through it, right? It's, yeah, it is. And well, I had practiced, I was really good at my pointy dance moves, you know, yeah. and, and my spins and stuff for disco dancing. And then obviously all of those skills went down the uh, down the toilet when the music <laughs> changed. But but in a say in a sense that kind of illustrates what happens even when things do change, which is the point that you're making is they're basically always changing and, and things are accelerating. And I think what an entrepreneur knows is that change is where the opportunity is created. So we actually are attracted to change. I, I personally am changing everything about my life constantly. I'm very nomadic. Um, I don't own any homes. Uh, I don't like to be tied down. Um, and I, 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 you know, for, for me, that's something that's, that's, that's very important that, that sense of, of freedom. This is a, a very interesting thing that because you, you very much tapped into your best self and you discovered it and you've played it out through the course of, you know, we will talk, obviously we led with wine, wine shopper that led to Mixonic that led to Telio. Like you literally go through this, you know, all I see is founder and CEO, founder and CEO, successful, you know, sale. And, and there's a very interesting thing where, you know, and then you immediately went into not just finding your best self, you know, and proving it four times over, but then you had the, the growth lab and this idea of the start out growth lab, which it seems to me that you not only saw that you could do this, but you wanted to unlock that in others. Exactly. It's the most rewarding thing I do is mentoring and I do it for free. And, um, part of what I did, uh, this, an organization came to me that, wanted a growth lab set up that uh, helped 
uh, with a focus on minorities and LGBTQ founders. Um, there's kind of a, a bro culture in Silicon Valley, I guess they call it. Um, and it is, you know, programming is still unfortunately dominated by white males and founders are typically white males and that's all good. Uh, but we want to make sure that there's some balance. And so we are, the focus of that was to attract companies with minority founders and gay founders. And we did a great job with that. We, people came from all over the world and we graduated 24 companies that have gone on to raise collectively $45 million and create over 200 new jobs. So that was truly the, the most rewarding in terms of emotionally and personally rewarding thing that I've done. Um, you know, all my companies have been, uh, journeys, uh, you know, it, it, it's never as easy on the inside as people like to make you think it looks on the outside. And, um, but yeah, in the end, all four of my companies ultimately did get acquired. And, um, and I'm very proud of that because a lot of, companies never get past, uh, you know, uh, a first year. In fact, 90% of startups fail. So um, the fact that I was able to get them, keep them alive uh, and through the hard times and then ultimately get them to be interesting enough that they would be acquired, that, that was a lot of work <laughs> and not easy. And there's a lot of luck involved too. I mean, I, I luck is a, a major factor, I think, in a lot of, um, of the outcomes we've seen in Silicon Valley. And anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't really understand themselves. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting that you've, you've seemed to have really, again, like tapped into both the, the things that you can bring as well as the awareness of the environmental factors that can, that can get you to a stage and, and some are as accidental as anything else, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, with Telio, uh, my third company was acquired by Microsoft for $23 million after a year of work and only $2 million raised. Um, so, you know, sometimes that happens, which is great. Um, and then sometimes you have situations like my last company, Line 2, where we had seven investors. Two of them suddenly needed money and tried to force a sale of the company, and that ended up in a ugly board fight. And when they took the company from me because they wanted to sell it and I didn't. So they removed me as CEO and five years later, they ended up selling it to a company that I had introduced them to that had offered $20 million, which was way too low at the time we were worth 40, 50, but they were desperate and ended up that, Five years later, the company was still at seven million in revenue, which I grew it to in 18 months. And then it stayed at seven for five years, which is definitely not value wow. enhancing in the eyes of buyers. And so then it, they ended up going back on their hands and knees to the same company who bought it for 12 million. So 
Uh, and at 12 million, as a founder, I was a common shareholder and most of my common shares were wiped out as well as those of my employees. I had to fight very hard to get them to give at least some of the value to the common shareholders like me and, and the employees who actually built the company. Well, that's an interesting thing, Peter, because, you know, when people see and, and they'll go through, even to go through your story, and you talked about obviously Telio and the, and the very strong result you had from that and, and someone, so to the, to the outsider, they look in and they'll say like, oh yeah, you started a company and it got sold for $12 million. Like, well, you never need to work again. Like there's, there's this weird, like this total complete misunderstanding as if like every exactly. yours, it's paid out in cash with no tax, you know, liability immediately. And you just like, we're in the money and you're like doing the monopoly man dance. Like <laughs> this is, that's not I how it is. And you're living it off, you're living off ramen noodles and out of the back of a van for, for months, just trying to keep, make sure that your staff are paid because they have to get paid and, and you're vested literally in the outcome because you can't take money out necessarily. Like there's so much of a dichotomy in the way that, outside viewers see startup funding and operation? It, it really, there really is. Um, you know, the, the lesson from line two, which was the $12 million exit that could have been 40 or 50 is choose your investors very carefully. You really have to date them. You have to almost think of it as a marriage because you're going to spend the next five to 10 years potentially with these people trying to create value. And if there's any misalignment as there was with that company, things can go sideways really quick. Um, and you know, that, that is, you know, just one of the things that can go wrong. And I think, yeah, you're right. The popular misconception is when a company sells for a billion dollars, even that everyone's going to get rich, but, even in those cases, that might not necessarily be true. A simple example is if you, this is why, this is the fallacy of raising money at large valuations. It's a big ego boost to, and it obviously is less dilutive to raise money at a higher valuation. If I raise money at a billion dollar pre-money and I give away and I, you know, someone invests uh, one, you know, a hundred million, then post money, they'll have a little less than 10%. But, uh, that same hundred million, if your pre-money valuation was a hundred million, then to raise a hundred million, you'd give away 50%. So everyone understands dilution, but what they don't understand is down rounds. And so what <laughs> yes. happens is if you, <laughs> if you raise, let's say things are flying high and it's a bubble economy and you get your valuation up to 4 billion. Um, and in, there are investors that invest at that pre-money valuation. They have liquidation preferences that kick in. And so even if you sell that company for a billion dollars, if you raised money at a $4 billion pre-money valuation, 
and you raised a ton of it at that valuation, all of those guys have to get paid back and get their return before you get any money. And there have been exits. I think Box is an example. The actual founders of Box made very little money. I think that's also true of, I'm not sure if that's true of the YouTube founders, but relative to the scale, the value that he's created, he got very little true, I think his name. And, and that, that's the unfortunate fact about it is that the investors can easily get all the money and the founders and employees get nothing. And that's the risk of a high valuation. If things suddenly go sideways. Yeah. And the, the difficult thing, and when you're going through those negotiations, like you're, you're negotiating on, on the potential for hockey sticks, right? Like there's, there, there are more hockey stick hopes in Silicon Valley than there are in the Boston Bruins training camp. I've never seen, (laughs) well said, I've never seen so much sort of belief that, that that is the only outcome. And as you mentioned, it's not, in fact, the odds are not in the favor of that actually being the outcome. Uh, Especially when you go past, there's a, there's a period of growth that it, it looks like it's going in that way, but unless it's maintained, then you suddenly become highly unattractive to future investment. Mm-hmm. And you may find that your early investors don't want to reinvest because they're not at that next round going to see the, the gains and they're, going to, they're only going to see that dilution. They're not going to see the same percentile gains. So then all of a sudden you're, you know, already in the relationship, seeking a new person to enter this funding relationship. And it's, it's a very confusing thing. And then, so really to top that off, if you're fresh to this, which most founders are, it's like you know, going to a, you know, like Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller says about, you know, timeshare, they did a, a sort of breakdown on, on timeshares. And he says, never let the guy that's selling you the timeshare help you with the math. Right. And guess what <laughs> investors are doing? They're selling you this potential growth and something that they're like, they're investing in your future now. And this is a relationship. This is an experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I need a, we need a seat on the board. Oh, and I need you to install these two executives for me. Oh, and I need these two advisors uh-huh. to come onto the team. And all of a sudden, yep. you're not only deluded, but you're now in, a, in, a, in an eight-way relationship where you now effectively have been diluted out of your value, but also out of your decision power. Absolutely. And that's what happened with line two. Um, you know, the, you, all CEOs ultimately serve at the pleasure of the board. And in the case of line two, the two investors I'm talking to had finagled three board seats for themselves out of five. So they could control the board, even though, I never thought they would because I never saw eye to eye on anything. But as you're kind of alluding to, things can change. And in fact, they did. And both of them suddenly had aligned interests of both needing money. And so, okay, well, we've got a company that just grew to 7 million in 18 months. We can sell on that and certainly get our money back. And that's what they wanted to do. Another myth that I'd love to hear your experiences on is also the idea that 
you know, being a, being a founder and, you know, again, sort of like if, even if you have two, three successful exits or was one really, you know, profoundly successful exit, there's this belief that like, oh, you can go start your next company and it can be like a hobby. Like it's just doing what you love. You're like, no, I got to run this thing every day. And the burn rates are disturbing. Yep. Like this is, there's no yeah. free, free companies. Like this yeah. is another, the money keeps pouring in and it also, it, you know, it very certainly, it pours out into the pockets of your cloud provider, your investors and your, <laughs> but very, the last person it pours out for is the person sitting in the engineering desk or very much so in, in the CEO's office. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you really smart investors understand that they'll succeed and the company will succeed if everybody's interests are aligned. And if you dilute the employees and founders to the point where there's really not much left in it for them, or they, you have to get just an extraordinary exit for them to make any money, then you're going to have a demotivated team. And that doesn't serve you as an investor. Uh, nobody's going to work just to make you rich. I mean, they want to also make money for themselves and their families. And if you set up your terms that, well, there's a high likelihood that the founder and the employees will be deprived of that, then you're going to lose people and you're going to fail. And I think short-sighted investors often forget that. I think one of the things I've seen in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years is that Wall Street thinking is really seeping into Silicon Valley at even the earliest stages of investing. You know, I was talking to a pre-seed investor the other day, and, you know, this is a, a fund. I won't name names, but, you know, they're pre-seed, meaning, you know, we really want to get you when you're early. And he's like, oh, but you guys are, Yaza is a consumer play. Um, so we want to see some growth first. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't say this to him, but I'm like, dude, okay, growth comes, but the, the ecosystem requires someone to help you at each step of the way. And if someone pre-seed is asking for growth, it's like, Jesus, how am I going to do that? I mean, the series A, you need growth to get a series A, and then you need sort of sustainable growth with a proven model to get a series B you know, replicable growth. And, but your seed, I mean, when I raised money for wine shopper, that was a major investor. I mean, Jeff put Bezos put, and, and Amazon put in 30 million and then Kleiner Perkins, which at the time was the top VC firm put in 16 million. So we had $46 million and um, I raised that uh, with a business plan and two co-founders, um, you know, and the money was to go out and do it. But now you have to go out and do it before you can get the money. <laughs> yeah, and, the, um, the card horse problem has very certainly uh, happened uh, in just like that's it's hilarious. Yeah, show show me some growth, and then we can get you some pre seed money. I'm like, I'm not sure if you know how this works. It's a... <laughs> right, and they all kind of adopted that because they're coming. I think it's that Wall Street thinking and the private equity thinking, where it's just you know money, money, money. I you know a, a good investor understands that in the early days of a startup, you are 100% focused on talking to your customers and iterating the product to make sure that you've got a good 
uh, app where you have high engagement, the app doesn't crash, all the user flows are working. So like right now with Yaza, you know, all we're working on is engagement. We're just doing a few of these podcasts, but we haven't even started any kind of outreach for public relations uh, because we are still trying to incorporate all the feedback we got from our first users, uh, you know, into the app so that the app is better before we start to really turn on the gasoline. And um, um, so, you know, that's where we are now. And, it, you know, I take the long view, I guess is how to say it. You know, we will grow and I know we're going to be able to grow. Um, but if you've got an app that has the potential to be viral because it is a messenger, so, you know, it takes two to tango. You can't just message yourself. And that it's like the guy that invented help the first you. fax machine. It was like, whew, I sure hope this thing takes off. <laughs> Where do I, I send it? <laughs> I need at least one other person to buy into this ecosystem with me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I don't want to, you know, blow any press hits or other potential publicity on an app where people download it and then they churn out. Um, so I want to make sure we have great retention and engagement and, you know, that's what we're saying with Yaz. I mean, people basically it's for recording HD video where it doesn't use storage on your phone and it doesn't use data when you're sharing it through some tricks we do. Um, all the videos are placed on maps, so they're easy to find. Uh, we run them through AI image classifier for what's in them. So you can actually search for, you know, video of me swimming with Susan and find them. So it's really an app to make video easier to use as files get bigger and bigger because cameras are getting better and better. And even with 5G coming, just these files are gonna be so massive when you do a 4K HD video that we can't send them the way we send them now with WhatsApp. You, you've gotta do it a different way and that's part of what we've developed with Yaza. Well, but, and this is, uh, it's it's, sort of, you really, you hit on something that people also, these are just terrifying assumptions that are made in the industry that the, you know, 5G is coming so we can share, we can share everything, like you said, at, at 4K, I can stream 4K, you know, from, from the Daytona 500 and, and I can see it on the bus on the way to work. Like, well, you, you, that 5G won't feel like 5G if everybody does that. It's it will exactly it and will it's not ravage the network, <laughs> right? There's this exactly. awful assumption that like oh of course you're in like New York City, you know of course you're standing underneath a cell tower, it's great. But guess what? Most of the middle of the country is underrepresented by cell phone coverage, very certainly by five G, exactly. and that assumes that you only have a North American audience. Which also spoiler alert for most companies today that is not your only target audience, maybe the bolder part of your target audience, but you have to have this global reach and global reach means, guess what? Your networks are gonna look pretty, pretty atrocious on the other side. And also, yeah, uh, and sorry, you, you just, the thing that you, you we'll, we'll talk about network size is incredibly important because just the internet's busted and, and it's really, it's broken the future of how we believe, you know, the internet should work, but, yeah. Well, I want to go into the AI bits about the fact that you're able to classify 
video because that also is a huge thing that people are going to love uh, in in what Yaz mm -hmm. is doing. So, but so why is why is the inter internet broken? Uh, contrary to what everybody believes, it's just, it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it 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 is broken because the ad model rewards clicks and to get clicks you have to stand out and over time it became harder and harder to stand out so headlines became clickbait and you had to say more and more extreme things in order to get clicks and so right now the internet rewards extremist points of view and rewards people who say the most outlandish things. And that's the opposite of what we want because you're actually getting rich. The more outlandish what you say is, the more clicks you'll get and the richer you'll get. So it's this perverse inversion of the rewards that actually incentivizes fake news. And that's, that's a serious problem. And so like with Yaza, we're not even allowing uh, advertising uh, we don't run the videos through anything that ties in with marketing and we'll, we'll just monetize with a simple subscription plan it'll be like Dropbox you can get up to two gigabits of free storage and then if you need more storage we'll charge you like 495 a month or something but we are offering all users who join before June, um, lifetime free unlimited memory, which we haven't really put that out there yet. Oh but my, I think, you just early did. <laughs> I think you just did, my friend. <laughs> I think I just did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, at least if you join before June 30th, because we want to get more people on the platform now that we've got the, uh, the kinks worked out um, from our launch in November. And this is... God, I could I could spend probably a couple hours talking with you on the ethics because you you it sounds to me like you you know the right things to do and I don't and it sounds like that's such it seems like such a simple statement but you just beautifully described the problems with the 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 ad you know and this whole idea of the click economy that it's driven and incentivizes poor behavior. Everything is blistering and savage. And like it's, if it isn't, mm -hmm. you know, somebody getting dunked on or whatever the, the phraseology is of that week to like pull you into the, the headline and make you click the thing, you know, it's like, oh yeah, yep. see the, see the, the, the ab secret that his trainer, every trainer hates, you know, like whatever, like all, yeah. uh, it's, it's all this stupid. <laughs> the outbrain. one thing you must know. Yeah. You know, a little picture of like showing you know, how you, how you poop better in the morning. It's a picture of a guy putting a banana in like olive oil. Like I, there's it's just the most bizarre <laughs> stuff you see in these like outbrain, you know, and it's, they're on major, major networks. That's what's really disturbing yeah. to me, Peter, is that like you go to the major television networks and they have this junk on the bottom and surrounding the story that the story itself is already predominantly built around click economy just to get you in there but then they're keeping you there yeah. and trying to send you out to other horrifying clicks oh god there's just so yeah. much that's that's wrong about it i'm a big longtime student of bj fogg and sort of the idea of like persuasive computing and the interesting thing mm -hmm. was that 
he brought stuff to the world and, and actually taught at Stanford and still, I think it's actually still uh, in, in residence at Stanford, um, but is now like teaching the ethics of like, hey, I taught you how to, how you to do stuff that can create behavior, but you did bad things yeah. with it. So please stop. And you're seeing exactly. like Tristan Harris is out there very strongly trying to like create better ecosystems for how we can, like we know how to do naughty things with your behavior. Uh, let's try to do nice things <laughs> with the naughty techniques. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's, it's, you're spot on. And I think people are kind of fed up with it. And they're also fed up with corporations, uh, you know, and Wall Street. I mean, we saw what happened in 2009. And, you know, we had Enron. And then we had all this real estate fraud in 2009. And, um, the, you know, and, and now we've got all these privacy breaches and stuff like that. And it's like, who's holding any of these companies accountable. And, and I think that's going to be increasingly important, especially if you're dealing with other people's data, like we have to keep, uh, protect the privacy of our users. So we actually incorporated the company as a Delaware public benefit corporation, which is an option. Now, some people have heard of B corps, uh, benefit corps and think of it as like a good housekeeping seal of approval by this organization that makes sure you're doing right by society and the environment, not just making money. Delaware has gone on to codify that into Delaware uh, corporate code. So now I can set up a company as a Delaware public benefit corporation. It has all the benefits of a C corp, the classic corporate form used by startups and other people who attend to go public, but it has a triple bottom line. So we're hold to, held to a higher standard of not just making money for investors, but also society, meaning our employees, the communities we operate in, and then the environment, um, you know, doing right in terms of our policies and their potential impact on environmental issues. And we're held accountable to that. And that is an additional level of, of, of I guess, assurance that I think is going to become more and more important that corporations can offer. And there are some big companies. Um, uh, I, I, I want to say L.L. Bean, I'm pretty sure, is a public benefit corp. Uh, it's possible. I can't remember if Sephora is, but there are some publicly traded companies that are public benefit corps. So it's not as crazy as you think. And in fact, if you want to go deep on it, I'll just say one more thing. But, yeah. you know, the... Well, uh, there's a, a trend even amongst corporate CEOs. So Jamie Dimon, who ran, uh, I guess he was J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan. Um, says, yeah, yeah. yeah and he was in charge of uh, it's some kind of a corporate roundtable. I'm not sure the exact name that kind of oversees ethics for corporations and sort of what their duties are. And he and that board, basically that group came out saying that, you know, corporations can no longer succeed just by maximizing shareholder value, but they must also do right by their employees, their communities, and the environment uh, in order to succeed. And, you know, that hopefully is a change that's a trend rather than a, a blip. But we're definitely we jumped on that bandwagon by making Yaza a public benefit court. 
when I think this is, you know, it sounds like, it just sounds like throughout your entire career, I can definitely sense that you've been ethic, you feel duty bound to the ethic of your own behavior and how you treat your team everybody who's part of that Absolutely. including your investors it's it, and sadly it's a rarity right and, and even yeah so i i love this i love that you brought up jamie diamond jamie's you know un, unfortunately famous for most people for, for many <laughs> wrong reasons having mm-hmm. you know led led a company through the financial crisis effective you know some may even say as is responsible for you know a significant mm-hmm. portion of the 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 2008 financial crisis and and many other things that have gone on so the unfortunate thing is it that cuts into the value that he is leading with this this financial uh, roundtable and and i loved the results of that but people still have this sort of unfortunate picture of like, well, you know, screw that guy because, you know, he's, he's done now <laughs> because he's a, he's a billionaire or whatever, like, but he recognizes and, and even others who led companies through poor decisions uh, that affected maybe society, their shareholders, whatever it was, you know, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, another example, you know, when, when, when Lloyd mm-hmm. Blankfein, uh, had uh, had suffered with cancer, and luckily, you know, Knockwood and 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 you know, and and you know, all the all the thoughts are with him that he's he is on, remiss and 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 on the other side of it. But you know, there are people mm-hmm. who are like, good, you know, like ah, oh, good. I hope he goes yeah. down. And you're like, ah, oh, man, like no, you understand. Here's somebody who has the ability to actually affect change, like financially yeah. lead people towards change, and like, look, I'm not going to discount the the things that they could have done at other points in their career but i just feel sometimes like there's you know people look to those leaders those negative leadership things and it's not that they not that they want more people to have more stuff they want certain people to have less and that's what's unfortunate is that <laughs> exactly it's the counter to you know like when i look at how i want people to succeed it's that whole like a, a rising tide lifts all boats, not yeah. that. That's the way to, I think of it. We need to not like we need to. That boat over there is a little higher than mine. Let's go put some sandbags in that boat. You're like, no, <laughs> no this is it's not. That's it's not, not how the it idea. Works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that you know I'm a competitive person, but I I don't believe in winning at all costs, and I've never believed. I don't know. I, I, I just don't have the, maybe this is an issue for me why I'm not a billionaire. Not that I want to be one, but I, I don't seek the money so much. I, I really, it's the whole ride that's enjoyable for me. I mean, the reward is you, you've created something where there was nothing but a vacuum and it, and you got people to like it and like it so much that they would pay for it and you know that's kind of like putting a movie out or something i mean it's you're putting yourself out there it's your creation you know for me i'm a very product focused entrepreneur so i love to i design our products initially and then i give them to the professionals to to clean it up but i'm very involved in that process of design 
And um, and now I'm going to forget where I was going with this. Which no, but it's I you 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 described yourself as product focused, and I would actually I would actually posit that you're you're people focused. In very much so. It's it's they're they're paired like you cannot be product focused if you don't understand how people will consume things which is why some of the best programmers i know in fact have have background like their schooling is often in in psychology or philosophy uh and it's because they have the technical skills to be able to program that they acquired later in life maybe or that they always had they just didn't want to go to school for it um but to understand how to have empathy during developing a product and understanding how people will use things and how the network effect, but the network effect is not, doesn't just happen. It happens by you creating a place where the network effect can occur. It's, it's not just like, Oh, you, you, so, you know, you create Yaza and you've got this thing, but like you said, I've got to make it work before I invite the world to it. Otherwise they're going to arrive Mm -hmm. and they're going to go, this thing is not what I expected. And they're going to get out. And then that will be the next. And they won't come back. Right. Get one shot. And so, yeah, I'm very, I'm very careful about that. And you know, the 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 one of the things we're talking about um, with the product focus and focus on customers is you use the word already, and it's a really powerful one, which is empathy. You have to be an empathetic person to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a customer and really think through the, what they wouldn't feel when they use your product. But beyond that, you've got to get in front of them so they can actually tell you. And I think that was the biggest lesson of doing startups for me, particularly software startups, is that um, there's an expression, if you waited too long, uh, oh, if you're not embarrassed by your first release, you waited too long to release it. And so there is, you know, a, a little bit, and I, this is one of my faults that I'm working on is that I'm such a perfectionist that I won't let it out <laughs> until I'm really sure of it. But, um, you know, my minimum vial products are a lot more polished, I guess, than uh, they would be in the past. But I think that's important now because the bar is so much higher. There's certain things that are just expected in terms of the quality of an experience with an app. And so to get an app that looks legit and actually works, particularly one as complicated as Yaza, that is no easy task. And it requires customers to really guide the final, putting the fine points on it. And, you know, every product I've ever taken to market ultimately has been changed or tweaked at least by my customers. And if you listen to them and follow them, that's how you ultimately get growth and then a potential exit. And I would say that your, your minimum viable product is in fact, right. Even if it feels you, I think you put a, you put your own stronger lens uh, on yourself of like, I, I hung onto it a little longer than maybe I, I, than others would have, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's borne out in the proof of viability comes in many forms and your measure of viability is that I, I can get somebody to do this, do something with this that they will, and they will adore. 
And as a result, yeah, of doing and it's that, just such a great feeling. I mean, for a kid who maybe wasn't so popular in high school or junior high, because I was very shy, um, maybe th- maybe there's something going on where, well, if I couldn't be popular, I could create something that's popular. Um, and, you know, there's something very gratifying because I think we all like the things that we do to be liked. We all need to be liked and loved, but we also want the things that we do to be liked and loved. And, but that's really risky when you put things out there, like you decide to, you want to paint or you decide you're going to build your own deck for the first time, or you decide you want to start a company or you decide on a product. You're putting yourself out there and that's really scary because you will get feedback the way the internet gives feedback and the internet (laughs) is very blunt. (laughs) I'll just put it that way. The internet is very blunt if it doesn't like something. And so, yeah, I am a little bit more careful. And when I release, because I don't want to leave anything obvious that people are just going to harsh on and attract trolls, what have you. When to revisit I said we were going to get back to some of the technical stuff and and in fact uh yeah are, are you bound by that we I, we've got a few minutes left I, I wouldn't mind no, going I've got a little longer okay good yeah because I, I I I could do this all day really truthfully <laughs> this is really, yeah, really, it's really fun talking with you I'm enjoying it the the fact that you're doing stuff with this video where you can effectively index what's going on inside the video. Thankfully, we've got incredible powers of technology that can do this. Uh, that's, that's one of the biggest failings, I think, today of video, long-form video to be successful is because, uh, like, no one goes back and watches their wedding video or their honeymoon video. Like, you put it on, the, uh, on tape, you know, and then it goes on yeah. the shelf beside the wedding album. And Never either, seen again, yeah. And that's because of you you can't really index the experience and go in and, and searchability means you suddenly have the the capability to let a lot of video live out there and you can go back and and understand what's going you can search what's going on inside us I'd, I'd love to talk about what you're doing in there and, and how you're solving that problem sure absolutely eric so you know really hit on kind of the major problem that we we realize is right now 80% of the video or of the internet is video. I mean, video is huge and growing. And as I mentioned, with cameras getting better and speeds going up, files are getting bigger and bigger. And I just, I think most people's video is like that wedding uh, um, album that you were discussing. It, it mostly just sits there in your phone's memory or wherever you store it. And you never look at it again. And we're like, all this content is sitting out, sitting there from your friends. Maybe you've never been to Berlin, but they've been to Berlin and they've posted videos at all these cool places and they show up on your Yaza map. And you, when you go to Berlin, they're right there on the map. And so they're handy and then um, searchable because now I'll get into the tech because we do run them through an AI image classifier. So we're using, right now we're using Google's, um, part of Google Cloud Services. Uh, you can upload photos and videos and they'll tag them. And there's various variables. 
But then we'll take that, which is pure image recognition, sees dogs, it sees beaches, it sees water, it sees clouds, cars, uh, food, pizza. It can recognize a lot of things. It can also recognize some activities like playing soccer, swimming, playing lacrosse, playing football, playing baseball. And so we'll take what they give us and then we'll increase our intelligence in terms of how we parse it out or what tags we add to it because we know a couple things that Google didn't with that video is that we know exactly where it was recorded and we know exactly when it was recorded and where something is is a huge they say location is intent it is probably the biggest driver of context um, and context is essential for artificial intelligence I mean just think about parsing the word bar it depends on how it's being used it could be a bar of chocolate a gold bar it could be a steel bar at a construction site it could be uh, uh, the legal bar that uh, lawyers have to pass it could be a bar where you get drinks and so context is critical and location is the biggest most powerful driver of that like you much if someone is inside a movie theater you can probably guess that they're watching a movie so you could tag that with watching a movie and you could even get smarter because we know when they were there and we know what theater they were at. And as we know their preferences all on an a, a anonymized way, we can start to even figure out what movie they were watching. Um, so, and, and, you know, and if, if, if the image classifier sees a lot of food, well, if you're in a supermarket, it can probably figure out that you're shopping. Whereas if you're in a restaurant, it could figure out that you're probably eating. Um, and none of that information is passed to a standard classifier. So we think that the location and the time is going to make our ability to tag videos with what's happening inside them even easier. And then to your point, being able to find specific moments within videos like that wedding example will be really important. And so right now with the odds that you can type in words in the search filter, and if any of the videos were tagged with those words, then those videos will come up and be displayed. And so it just makes it really easy. I could say, oh, where was that? Where was I when I was, okay, we're eating shrimp and we were, we, you know, we were at a park. So I know there was, we were in a park, so there's lots of trees and grass and you start to reconstruct it and then you have enough to go on and then you just search for it and up, up it comes. Well, it is, it's funny. You, I was immediately thinking of like the moment we were just trying to describe, like, and I, I, I thought of context immediately and, and you, you already hit it in, in your explanation, but like context is incredibly important. I've been to the Champs-Élysées uh, three times, N never in the middle of July though, when I want to be there for the Tour de France. Uh, so <laughs> context matters, right? So location without yeah. timing uh, separates the events, uh, you know, and yeah, so here's an example where you could be on the Champs-Élysées, you know, for, for the final stage of the tour. And you could also be in Barcelona in a bar with friends watching the tour on TV. And that could be your description mm. of it, right? So 
both are experiencing Tour de France. Again, it would be contextual yep. to the video content based on timing, location, and other stuff. So this sort of like the ability to take that as a metadata framework and mm -hmm. not have to have it be bound to, you know, the the product roadmap of of google photos which may or may not disappear on you know god god bless google they do amazing things in the infrastructure but they do awful things with product uh, longevity <laughs> you know yeah, or, or or you're not necessarily in an apple ecosystem because guess what right most of you know while they're the dominant phone in the world as far as number of handsets they're not dominant in every country and they're certainly not right they don't own it all. So it's Android, it's, you know, it's, there's still, you know, non-Android and, and non-iOS phones that are out in the world. And so I know, crazy. So it, it's, there's, a, there's an ability to be agnostic to the hardware and to yeah. the backend ecosystem. And that's what I, that's what I love about the Yaza story and, the, and what you're doing because it's, it, it's a beautiful abstraction away from having to rely on somebody else who look truthfully is a lot of it also could be rolled around surveillance capitalism which you know like hey good on them they got to do what they got to do to stay stay running and pay for that infrastructure but you are really you're you're user focused and the fact that you're laying down the ethics of how you're doing it up front this is cool you know so i i'm i'm excited Thank both you. by the technology and just your approach which i think is is refreshing compared to a lot of what we see in the world today, sadly, right? Yeah, well, thank you, Eric. I really do appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, I'm super excited about what we're doing. It is really hard. Um, the product is uh, coming along. It's going to get better and better. And, you know, you talked about network effects. One thing we did see with early engagement it's something called a smile curve, which is basically a smile curve is your retention rate dropping and then going back up, meaning customers use it, they went away, then they came back, and then they come back more and more often. And that is typical curve for a company or a, a product that will have a network effect because it's in fact showing that because Network effect just means that the more people who use the service, the more valuable it becomes. And what you see with users, if you see users coming back more and more over time instead of churning out, but they actually come back from churning out, then that's usually because there's more and more content for them that interests them or they've invested more of their time putting their content on the platform. And so... Anyway, a bit of a diversion there about uh, smile curves, but I did want to, for the entrepreneurs out there, that that's something that when you see a smile curve in the first 12 weeks of launch, then you should smile, which is why they call it smile. <laughs> but it, and and it looks like a smile too. <laughs> and and ag again, it's as reminder that not everything is is up and to the right it's just it's just not feasible especially with certain platform types to like get them in and get you know get people in and continuously engage them on a minute by minute basis like it's that's great work for tiktok 
good on them, right? But that's because <laughs> it's like 14-second videos, and that's what they do. It is meant to make you just never want to leave and then lean over and show your friends, like, oh, my God, look at this crazy stuff. Like, But the, this, it's going to be a different – it's a smile curve or it's a frown curve, right? Because they're going to have incredible uptick and this incredible network effect – and then those people be like, okay, uh, that's cute. I get it. You know, 14 seconds, whatever. Like it's, and that's the reason why, you know, Vine was amazing. Uh, that's right. Where's, mm-hmm. where's Vine today? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I, that's, sorry, that's, I, a, that's kind of mean. I, I, I don't mean it like laughing no, in the face a, of no, like screw those guys. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. Well, that, that, that's the brutality of capitalism and, and that's okay. Uh, particularly with TikTok, because I mean, let's be real. They, they are a Chinese company that, and there's nothing wrong with Chinese companies, but Chinese companies that are that big. I've been over to China and I did a, a three-week startup boot camp in Shenzhen, China. So I, I understand the students there too. And I, I mean, TikTok is, is all marketing. And what I would like to know, the number that would really be telling with TikTok is how many of their customers are coming from their own efforts with influencers. Like uh, I think one of the guys, they got a cutie pie talk, They got, they paid him to talk about. So everybody was paid to talk about it at the beginning and they spent hundreds of millions of dollars marketing it but in underground ways and then suddenly it just came out of nowhere but if that growth is coming from dollars rather than people inviting each other that's what i want to see because it doesn't really have a messenger aspect that seems to be used that much i could be wrong but it's not like instagram and snap where there's messaging and yeah, it's purely entertaining, but I would just love to know how many of their customers are coming from invites from existing customers, because that's the real measure of a sustainable uh, network and and for growth. And I just don't know that number, but I do know they spent hundreds of millions of dollars bringing it to market. Yeah, when in, in, I mean, look at uh, HQ, uh, another good, great example of like HQ trivia was, you know, that people, it was around the world in, in no time where they're like, Hey, you got to get this thing. Like you can, you can win free money. And, and, you know, they had a, the beautiful intro and they, they made Scott Rogowski into us, into a star. And, you know, he will launch whatever his next career is, you know, as a result of like, Hey, you're the HQ guy. Uh, and, and they just they just closed the doors uh, the other day. Uh, it was actually very yeah. recently, and because unfortunately that that model was not sustainable because effectively they were spending into relevancy, and it's and it can work, but if if there's a thing that creates the ne- <clears throat> excuse me the next network, and I think that's. Mm-hmm. Like you talked about that's that smile curve, the interactivity, the fact that it's it's given you a positive reason to come back to this platform for yourself and for your friends. It it will 
allow you to organically and socially create a network instead of forcing the growth and then hoping that you can be revenue generating on the other side of it somehow, <laughs> which right. is why the they have so much, a lot of it, right? Yeah. And they have a lot of, they have deep pockets and, you know, with Chinese companies, uh, the, the government is always an investor, uh, in the biggest companies, uh, through this whole kind of network of companies they use. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I don't mean to, uh, just TikTok because, you know, the beauty of their model is the content comes from the crowd and like YouTube, that can be infinitely entertaining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not always the best, if not the best use of time. Um, but you know, there, it's not the same thing as a, as an actual social network because the thing that gets you never to leave something is if you've personally put your own stuff in there or your personal friends and family have put their stuff in there. And by leaving, you can't see it. Right. I mean, if I leave TikTok, I just stop being entertained by kids doing stupid things, but I'm not leaving anything personal behind. Um, and that in <laughs> fact is snaps problem because with the ephemeral content, that's why Instagram was able to eat their lunch is because by definition, everything on snap disappears. And that means there's nothing to keep people there. Right. And so a lot of people were like, Oh, it's easier to do the same thing on Instagram. My friends are already over there. Yeah. And, and it's uh, funny. I, I, so it's, it's funny when we started, before we started recording, I, I gave you like my, the things I'm never going to ask you to do. And I said, I'm never going to ask you about like competitors. And I totally pulled you into this TikTok <laughs> conversation and, and, you folks, did. and, and I, and it, it's the, the reason why it was interesting was just like you said, it's, it's just, it's just a different model. And, and I very exactly. definitely didn't mean to lean us into a, any kind of negativity on anything, just really truthful. No, it's, no, no, no. It's the honesty of the of the models, and especially like Chinese originated companies are so fundamentally different in the way they operate and how they're founded and how they're operated. It's really incredible. Uh, I actually, I'd love to have you. We we got to get back on. I'd love to actually unpack that three weeks you had in that boot camp in in China. There's oh so, my god, so there many must stories, be a so lot. many insights. You know, you've got so much stuff that we could we could talk about, Peter. And I look forward. We will. I'll make sure this goes out. So, folks that are listening, get out there. Uh, go to yaza.io, Y-A-Z-A, or Z-A, depending on what part of the 49th parallel you're from. <laughs> As a Canadian, <laughs> my Canadianism still come out. Um, and <laughs> there and, it is. And get on the platform. Check it out. Uh, this is really cool. As we mentioned, if you're listening, if you're, if it's too late and you've missed the June window, if you're listening to the show too late, uh, then, then still get in anyways, but you, there's an opportunity to get in for, for free lifetime storage, which is really cool. And I, uh, I'm, I'm excited just by, you know, my belief in the way that you're doing things and, and you will be successful in what you do regardless of the outcome, whatever. And I say that just because if I look at, you know, many serial founders and you talked about this before, right? If you, you had four successful companies that were, that exited through sale, one that was challenged. We talked about that. 
But regard, mm-hmm. if you had four companies that completely tipped over sideways, I would guarantee that you'd be starting a fifth company. And, and it's, I would be. <laughs> and this is the difference in, uh, you know, I, I, I want to go over your day with you one day. And like, just like if people, just to read your bio, people will be like, man, I feel like I'm lazy, uh, let alone just like how you get through your day to do a lot of these things. But, and this is why it's been. That's fantastic. very kind. I appreciate that. It's a, it's a pleasure to hear positive stories about founders that are doing things for the right reasons. And, uh, and for that reason, you know, that that's why people need to, people will find those platforms and they will adore them for the, for the reason why you've put it there. And it's cause you've poured Thank your, you. you've poured your ethics and yourself into it. And, and that's, I believe why, regardless of what the measurement is, there will be success in, in what you're doing here, which is pretty cool. I, I, you're exactly right. I know exactly you're saying it that way for a reason, because it will be fulfilling. Uh, it might not necessarily be, you never know on financial outcomes as my story about line two illustrates, but, and you know, how a lot of founders get, get, you know, crushed down. But, um, you know, I, I really do appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you. It's really fun. And I, I would be delighted to come back and talk to you more about China at some point. And because I learned some fascinating things about the role of government in innovation over there, how they, uh, uh, how investors think, um, how what investors invest in is actually uh, recommended by the central committee uh, in the research department. And the big focus is technology transfer back into China. So it's blatant that they're, the idea is they will fund companies that can bring technologies into China that they can copy. And I say copy only because the Chinese themselves tell you that that is their strategy. Like all the students that I talked to at the school, yeah, no, we just copy it. Um, America, Americans design it and then we copy it for China and we don't let the American company in, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and for all of its own reasons, it's, it's created this in, in ecosystem that's just, it's, in, it's fascinating to watch and it's such a just such a very different like that's why so many companies that are north american companies just really struggle with with launching into that you know and you know we we've, we've yeah. heard about especially the bigs you know with the ubers of the world and, and others that have tried to kind of enter that that chinese market why it's so fundamentally different and why it's so can be dangerous really for companies that aren't aware that like you said it's for whatever reason, right, wrong, take it all out of it. That's just, it's in the nature of the way that the operations are, that they look for things that are successful to clone and recreate them to push back into their own system. And that's, you know, it's, the population is, is one that you just, you can't compete with just the, the size yep. of it. You see it, you know, again, distinct, markets that are in sort of South Asian markets. If you're moving into a lot of companies now and North American companies are, are making the move into the Indian, you know, markets. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, it took a long time. I think it was a real faith exercise to understand that like, Hey, 
Did I lose him? Got a societal way of operating that's so fundamentally different than ours which created yeah. you know, outsourcing and all these things like God, again, sorry, I, I'm taking us into like a, a whole, like two, three other podcasts <laughs> oh, of, of talks, but, um, so, so Peter, I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, this, this is cool. So for folks that want to get a hold of you and want to, to get in touch and find out more about you, uh, what's the best way for, for people to reach out to you? Okay. Uh, to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Peter Sisson, S is in Sam, I double S is in Sam, O N is in Nancy. And um, you can try to connect with me there. I'm pretty slow on LinkedIn, but I eventually do get to them. Um, uh, you can also email me, Peter at yaza.io. And I try to be good with email, but also can be a little slow. Um, I, as I said, I do, uh, I'm happy to help people who want to bring products to market. Um, I do free. I do it for free when I can. And then if people want more help, I can work out things. But my number one focus right now is Yaza. And uh, we're in the app store on iOS uh, and hopefully uh, Android by the end of the year. Nice. There you go, folks. Get on it. Get on Yaza. Uh, this is, is going to be cool to watch. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be back. Uh, Peter, I'm officially welcoming you as a repeat, repeating guest on here because awesome. uh, there's just so much to explore. Um, again, for folks, uh, if you want to... If you want to see another great network effect, please rate this podcast. It's always always appreciated if you, people can jump in, uh, you know, click on click on the star rating. Uh, it's it's helpful for us to make sure that more folks can hear uh, great people like Peter and and hear these stories. Uh, and of course, you can go to discopossepodcast.com. And we store, uh, we're trying to get as many of them transcribed as possible. Unfortunately, like any good startup, this is being bootstrapped out of my own wallet. Uh, so uh, transcriptions <laughs> not yet either accurate or free. And those are two distinct things and only one can occur. <laughs> because uh, I've learned that, uh, yeah, AWS transcribe, super inexpensive super inaccurate uh so <laughs> this is why yeah, what rate, you pay for. yeah well that's exactly it so peter it's been an absolute pleasure uh we we wish you the best we'll have you we'll, we'll talk again in future uh it's been an absolute amazing experience to share the time with you today it's been a great pleasure eric thanks for having me and i look forward to coming back